Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. Our guest today is Mike McFadden, partner and co-founder of London-based B2B FinTech venture capital firm, Element Ventures. Mike made his first FinTech investment in 2009 and since has had 12 years investing experience working with Barclays and Euclid Opportunities. He currently represents Element on the board of Hepster, Billhop, Mina Technologies, and CoinCover. Mike holds a master's in finance from the London Business School and lives in London with his wife and two small children. In today's episode, we discuss launching Element Ventures, the fintech landscape in Europe, and dive deep into a few of Element's recent investments. We end today's session with a rapid-fire round of questions. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Mike, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Uh, so excited to have you here. How's your day going, and uh, where are you calling in from? Thanks very much for having me. Good to be here. I am calling in from cloudy and dreary London. I see most of my guests call in from like San Francisco or someplace sunny, so I feel better about this one. Uh, I know. I'm always uh, envious about the weather and the places where your guests are from. We don't have quite that luxury here. Yeah. Um, but I would love to hear a little bit about, uh, you know, if you could introduce yourself to the audience and talk about your path to fintech. Sure. So my name is Mike McVeggen. I am uh, one of the co-founders and a partner at a London-based fintech fund focused on B2B fintech called Element Ventures. I've been investing in B2B fintech now for 13 years. I started my career at Barclays in the investment bank in the principal investments business. Um, investing venture and, and growth equity size uh, tickets into what was then financial market infrastructure, now we call B2B FinTech. Uh, and then I spent some time with my current partner uh, in a corporate venture capital fund here in London. And then we had an opportunity to, to spin out uh, independently and, and start Element in 2019. So that's where I am today. And uh, before the call, you were talking to me a little bit about the, uh, the FinTech scene there in London. Uh, do you mind just expanding on that and sharing that with the audience as well? Yeah, well, for your more astute listeners, they may have picked the accent is not a British accent, but in fact, a Kiwi accent. So I was born and bred in New Zealand. And as we were chatting, uh, there was an over-representation of New Zealanders in FinTech in London for some reason. And I don't know why that is. Maybe they, they took a similar path to me, but every corner I look in in London FinTech, I, I meet another fellow Kiwi. And I would love to hear a little bit more about your time at Barclays uh, any, and any key takeaways you had from that uh, that helped you become a better investor. Yeah, so Barclays was a really great place to understand the domain that I'm in now. So we were building a principal investments business when I started in 2008 inside of the trading businesses at Barclays, actually inside the fixed income business. And I got to see for want of a better expression, how the sausage was made in terms of how banks both buy fintech and how they engage with fintech and how they invest in fintech. And so the inner workings of the complexity of a bank sales cycle, how many sponsors you need before they can sign a contract, what it means when something's been sent to procurement, uh, the relationship between innovation businesses and trading businesses. Uh, I think in my current seat, helping to work with portfolio companies who are often selling to banks, having spent a lot of time inside that has been incredibly valuable, especially around reading the tea leaves in, in terms of sales cycle. The second thing is I was very deep into what we used to call market structure, which is the types of 
infrastructures and institutions that were needed to help banks operate. So clearing houses, data platforms, trading platforms, exchanges, all of that kind of stuff. And lots of the evolutions of those types of market structures we're now seeing in new asset classes that are relevant to, to elements. So crypto, for example, much, I think, to the annoyance of many of the crypto maximalists out there, lots of the conversations we're having now in crypto feel a lot like the conversations we were having in FX in 2010, smart auto routers, algo platforms, scaffoldings of exchanges. And so when we see new businesses being born in new asset classes, I have quite a good reference point, I think, to some of the stuff that we used to do uh, at Barclays. And so a lot of that experience has ported over really well to helping our portfolio companies at Element. And then I think the last thing that I took away from Barclays is, is something a, a little bit less tangible, which is I was really fortunate when I was at Barclays to work with my boss, who had been in the city of London for a very long time, 20 years or so would be considered, he'd hate it if, I, if, he, if he knew this, an old school city guy, although he, he, he was young. And I think he had a lot of the values of the, uh, of the city as it used to operate in the 80s and 90s, especially, which is my word is my bond. He was a man who felt very deeply about the commitments that we made at Barclays to our portfolio companies and to our co-investors. And I think I have carried that a long way through my career. And you need to really to have to, been exposed to some of those values, I think, early on. And people don't think about those banks because of all the scandals around banks, people don't think that people like that sit inside of banks, but they really do. And I think that's really carried me through. And fidelity to the commitments that we've made, I think, is, is something that has always stayed with me after my time there. So you mentioned um, uh, working with fintechs that are selling to banks. And I frequently hear VCs kind of groan when they see you know, a startup that they like, but their business model involves selling to uh, large banks. Uh, mostly because, you know, stereotypically the banks move pretty slowly and, and uh, the time to partner takes a long time. Uh, but it, it doesn't seem like you shy away from that business model. Um, or do you? Can you just expand on that a little bit? We don't shy away from that business model at all. So actually the reason that Element exists as a fund is exactly the point you made, which is for a long, long time, VCs, and especially generalist VCs, didn't like B2B fintech, especially institutional fintech, where you were selling to asset managers, insurance companies, banks, and so on, because sales cycles are long, they're very complex, they're very good at coordinating uh, amongst themselves to make sure that markets um, operate in the way that they want them to operate, they're very good at investing where they need to invest and not investing where they don't need to invest. And so it's always been quite a complicated environment to sell in. In our old portfolio and in the Barclays portfolio, it was very, very difficult to get generalist VCs interested in B2B fintech. And when we started pitching Element, we, when we started going out in 2019, the first LPs we spoke to said to us, we don't like B2B fintech for two reasons. Sales cycles are long and there's never been a big outcome in B2B fintech. And then lo and behold, Encino IPOs. And Encino built their entire business on selling to banks, loan origination, and, and processing software sitting on top of salesforce.com, IPOs for, for three or four billion dollars, trading at the end of the day at seven billion dollars. And all of a sudden, B2B fintech becomes very popular. And it turns out that if you are willing to help firms and deal with the complexity of the sales cycles, the value of the contracts that you win are incredibly, incredibly big. And we're very tuned to that journey. And so part of the argument that we make when we speak to founders about my, why they might want to partner with Element is 
when we sit around the board table and we're having investor updates, we're very sympathetic, culturally sympathetic and empathetic to the journey that they're on. And we understand that it's difficult, but we also understand the value that you get if you can execute on that strategy properly. So we've been very deeply committed to the space for a long time. I would say, by the way, B2B FinTech is all the rage right now. So an argument maybe we were making two years ago, it feels like feels like everyone's on our, on our land now. And let's keep talking about uh, starting Element Ventures. How did you end up meeting Steve Gibson and Spencer Lake and, and deciding that this was the, the right next step for your career? So Steve, everyone calls him Gibbo, by the way. I, I can't remember the last time someone called Steve, Steve. We were co-invested in a business in Boston when he was running a, a venture fund and I was in Barclays that happened to be the subject of, of an industry blow up um, around uncollateralized derivatives. I mean, I mean, blow up in the context of a capital markets business. And we found ourselves on the same side of a fight about the future direction of, of this business. And we ended up spending a lot of time together. Uh, and we decided because we'd spent so much time together that we had a similar view of the world, which is technology and the changes to technology were going to have a big impact on B2B FinTech. And so I ended up leaving Barclays to join Gibbo at the fund he was running. And uh, it was a very venture-style corporate venture fund. We were very lucky to have a very entrepreneurial CEO who would let us be very autonomous in what we were doing. Uh, we could sit at the venture uh, end of the spectrum of corporate venture capital businesses. And we put um, quite a bit of money to work in kind of C through Series B investments in the institutional space. Uh, so we invested there for a long time together, got to know each other, obviously like working with each other. Spencer was at the time on the board of an, one of our portfolio companies in that business, a company called Duco. It's just had an amazing outcome. And so Steve and Spencer had spent some time together on the board. And Spencer is exceptional at understanding how businesses should sell, fintech businesses should sell to institutions. He is, he's been in the space for a very long time, he used to run banking and markets at HSBC, knows everybody there is to know in finance and has helped a lot of these companies. He was on the board of Encino, he was on the board of Finergo, he was on the board of Duco. He's seen and been on the journey with a lot of these companies who have been very successful in our space. Uh, and the three of us had lunch one day and, and we were talking about the opportunity in front of us to build a B2B FinTech fund. And lo and behold, that's what we did. We had our first close on December, the, Friday the 13th, 2019. You could have not have had a worse first close for a fund than Friday the 13th, 2019. But yeah, here we are, 18 months later. Amazing. And, and what's the mandate around uh, Element Ventures uh, Fund 1? Are there specific geographies that you're focused on or like stages of startups or anything like that? Yeah, so we're B2B focused. We characterize that typically as being six verticals, SME finance, capital markets, asset and wealth management, tech, B2B payments, and DeFi. We're an early stage fund late seed through early B, although I think round nomenclature in this environment is completely useless. Typically, we write first tickets of between, I guess, two to $8 million. Where we're really trying to invest is the earliest moment where the team feels there's some repeatability in the business. So I think it's, it's almost pre-product market fit where, I guess, product market fits that different your customers aren't yet pulling the product out of your business. You're still doing some, maybe some commercial experimentation, but you've sold the same product to the same client with the same product in largely the same way. And you might've done that once, or you might've done it a hundred times, but you have a sense of there's repeatability in your business. And that's when we're trying to invest. And some people do that in the kind of late seed stage. Some people take a little bit longer and that happens in the B stage. 
And then we're trying to help those companies scale up that repeatability. And then obviously the, the growth investors will come in uh, a bit later. But that's exactly where we're trying to play. About uh, a geography focus? Are you uh, like UK focused, Europe focused, worldwide? It's, it's such a good question because it's, it's moved a lot. So the last fund that Gibbo and I were in was 50% US, 50% Europe. But in the reality, it was Boston, Chicago, New York, and London, because it was very institutional focused. And that's because in the post-financial crisis era, if you wanted to build a business, you, a B2B fintech business, you built it inside one of the big commercial centers. And going into Element, we had a sense that it would be the same, that it would be 50% North America, 50% Europe. And then I think there were two things that changed our view on that. One slowly, one quickly. The slower one is there's been a trend for a long time, especially in Europe, that you can build really big, scaled, successful B2B fintech businesses outside of the main markets. And so Elements, first few investments, we're in Gothenburg in Sweden, we're in Rostock in Germany, we're in Cardiff in Wales. Ten years ago, it was very difficult to build businesses in those centers of the size and scale that we're seeing today. And so we've become much more distributed, I think, in the places that we look. And then obviously the pandemic hit. In our last fund, we were, you know, one of us was in New York every three weeks, boots on the ground, you know, continuing to find great investments. And then all of a sudden, for the last two years, we haven't been able to travel. So we've become very European focused in this fund. I, I think that's the right thing for us to have done. I think the US is very well covered. There's a lot of craziness going on in the US right now. It's a, it's a market with its own dynamics. Europe is less well covered from, from the fintech perspective. We get... We see great opportunities inside lots and lots and lots of different places here. Uh, so we'll continue to be very European focused, I think, for the, for the next little while. You mentioned those six verticals within B2B FinTech, and each of those six are in different stages of their maturity. Uh, for example, DeFi is much younger than something like B2B payments. Could you share your thoughts on a few of those sectors and what kinds of companies you're looking for within them? Yeah, so we're spending a lot of time in a few of those places right now and a few of those themes. The first is financial tools and the financing gap to SMEs in Europe. So for a long time, it's been known that SMEs are very underserved in Europe with regard to financing. So banks haven't evolved very well. Technology in that space hasn't evolved very well. And it's been very difficult for SMEs early in their life to obtain efficient financing. That's changing a lot now. So there's lots of regulatory changes, lots of infrastructure changes, lots of technology changes that mean that the delivery of financing into SMEs uh, is changing. There's an enormous, enormous need in Europe for that to improve quickly. And so we've spent a lot of time in that space and we invested in a company in Sweden called Billhop, which allows SMEs to pay bills using their credit card when the other end doesn't accept credit cards, they don't have to be on the network. Very simple piece of technology, very well executed plan but plugging a very, very deep need for companies to just have simple access to financing. And we've been spending time in lending for interchange, you know, new types of factoring businesses, exchanges for contracts around financing and various other things. We think there's a, there's a really big opportunity there. I spent some time um, investing or looking at investments in uh, Latin America, and uh, I didn't appreciate the the differences across the region uh, very well until I kind of dove deep, deeper into it. And so I think, you know, you might be, for the sake of the audience, kind of saying investing in Europe, but uh, are there any, like, major differences across the region that took you a little bit of time to appreciate as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think 
saying you're investing in Europe is, is exactly a lot like saying you're investing in Latin America. There's huge amounts of differences in, in amongst it. Europe's a great geography and quite homogenous in some senses, which is, other than Brexit, it has quite a consistent regulatory environment. There's a lot of passporting that allows companies to move quite freely and offer services, goods and services across national borders. Uh, the financial market and financial market infrastructure and regulations are very consistent across that. So on one aspect, you could see Europe as being quite a homogenous market in which to operate. The places where it's really different is cultural. So selling insurance in Germany is completely different to selling insurance in the UK or in Sweden. The type of financing that businesses want in Germany is completely different than it is in Sweden and in the UK. And part of what we're trying to work out every time we make an investment is how portable is the validation that a company's got inside of its home geography across Europe more broadly? Where is the second and third market that they might go to? How big are those markets? But you do need to be very careful as you operate across Europe to make sure that you're cognizant of the cultural environment because Swedish founders, German founders, Welsh founders, British founders, they're all very different to each other. But I think that's what gives us a bit of an edge being on the ground here, because you do need to be quite deeply immersed in each of these countries and, and each of the, the differences between them to really understand the type of business that you're dealing with. As I cut you off earlier, was there anything else you wanted to say about the, uh, the different uh, verticals that you're looking into? Yeah, actually, and I think it plays into the second question about the, how homogenous is, is the European environment. So one of the spaces we've been spending a lot of time in recently is the evolution of open banking in Europe. So you don't yet have this market structure in the US where in Europe we have regulated infrastructure opening up data moats around banks. And for, that took a long time to get going, but we're now seeing a, quite a lot of maturation around both the ability to pull data out of banks into new places as well as to make payments. And what we think of as the tooling layer around that, who's going to build interesting businesses on top of this new infrastructure? That is really hitting its moment in Europe right now. And whether it's account-to-account -account payment allowing you to bypass some of the existing payment networks, whether it's credit decisioning using real-time account data inside of consumers' bank accounts, whether it's product recommendations, whether it's insurance, there's, there's a whole movement going on right now with people building on top of this really brand-new infrastructure. And the beauty of it is that, it's, that it is relatively homogenous because of the European regulations around it. So you can port your success in one country uh, to lots of others, knowing that your base infrastructure is largely the same. Understood. And one of my favorite things to do when talking with VCs is, is kind of dive into a couple of your portfolio companies and, and hear about uh, what excited you about those investment opportunities. So I've got a few in mind that we can jump into, uh, if, you, if you don't mind. Of course, far away. So maybe let's start with CoinCover and how you guys decided to, to go forward with that investment. Yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant business. And David, uh, who runs that business, is, is, a, is a seriously, seriously good operator. That's the business, by the way, that's in, in Cardiff. It's, it's built in Wales, um, which is a two-hour train ride from, from London. So we had been spending some time in crypto market structure and we're by no means crypto experts and we, we threw our hands up early in the process and said that we're never going to be crypto experts but we had some experience in some of our prior portfolio companies around the way that some of these markets evolve from an infrastructure perspective so we've been looking for picks and shovels into the crypto market what would help institutions and consumers adopt 
these emerging digital assets. And when we came across CoinCover, it perfectly fit with the thesis. And so what CoinCover does is it is a recovery and insurance product for consumers in crypto. So what that means, and lots of your listeners will know this, is when you sign up for a wallet for, to, to hold your crypto, often you're given a seed phrase, to, which is the uh, transformation of your, uh, of your private keys. People write those seed phrases down, they put them in their desk, they put it on a, on a sticky on their, on their desktop or whatever, and then they lose them. And there's all these horror stories about laptops going missing and council landfills with you know hundreds of millions of dollars worth of crypto on them and all this stuff. And the management of private keys and seed phrases has been a barrier to large-scale crypto adoption for a long time. It just scares people and it's unfamiliar and, and how do I manage these things? And so CoinCover is solving those problems, which is if you have a wallet, which is which what David would call protected by CoinCover, if you lose your seed phrase, you lose your private keys, they can recover your crypto, move it into another wallet, and then give you access to that wallet. So you are protected from accidental loss of your private keys. And that's huge for crypto. I mean, it's absolutely enormous that, you know, the fears of losing your laptop can be can be obviated. And then the other thing they've done that's really clever is they've wrapped that in an insurance product. So if you get hacked, so if instead of losing your, your seed phrase, you lose your crypto through some nefarious act, hacked, social engineering, SIM swap, whatever it might be, if you have a fair claim, um, you can claim insurance on that and they will pay you out for those lost crypto. And so it's a safety net for consumers wanting to get into crypto. It may be mechanics that are unfamiliar to them. And the growth rate and the success of CoinCover, and you'll see a lot of news about this in, in the next few months, is absolutely astonishing. I mean, if we had a thesis going into it that this business was needed, uh, it has been proven out in spades. But it's a good example, I think, of where we play best, which is picks and shovels into a market that's developing, where we, we know we're not experts. We brought we, we were in an amazing consortium around that, the syndicate of that, DRW, Vault, Fintech Collective. We had an amazing group of crypto investors also supporting that investment, whereas we're just helping that business to think about scaling along a thesis where you know we thought that market market need existed. Very cool. And let's stay on the uh, insurance topic. I saw you had a few insured tech investments, Hepster and Roadzen. Uh, would love to hear kind of what excites you about insured tech in particular, these two companies. Yeah, Hepster is another one of those businesses where when I tell you what it does, you think, of course, we should have always had that. Why, why haven't we always had that? And what they do is they deliver product insurance as an API to an e-commerce checkout. So where Anarud's buying a high-value item online, bikes, e-bikes, electronics, whatever it might be, instead of having to jump off your e-commerce journey to buy insurance for that, either onto an aggregator site or call your insurer, whatever it might be, the e-commerce provider can, can embed the insurance product at the point of checkout. So they can just say, Anarud, do you want to insure this product? Yeah, okay, great. Click the button. That product is provided by Hepster. They're a completely digital MGA a product agnostic technology stack in the background. So they're not built around a particular product vertical. They can tailor make products for the needs of their B2B partners delivered in a very flexible and modern way. And they had an, an astonishing 2019. When, when we met them, the team had you know frazzled hair and hadn't left the office for, for, for 100 days or something. They, were, they just took fire because the pandemic forced so much commerce online 
their home market is Germany. Germany is 1% of the world's population, 4% of the world's gross written premium. They're a very insured market generally. People wanted to buy insurance in their e-commerce journey, but didn't know how to do it. And so all of a sudden, B2B stores were being asked by their customers, why can't I buy insurance as part of my e-commerce journey? All of these B2B partners were then searching around Europe, trying to find a partner that could deliver digital insurance, pub checkout, and that was Hipster. And they have just launched pet insurance. I keep saying to my teammates and element into our LPs, I never thought as a B2B fintech investor, I would be talking about cat insurance. But here I am in board meetings talking about the size of the cat and dog insurance market in, in Europe. But they just continue to launch product after product, partner after partner. But it's a really good example, I think, about our insurtech thesis, which is insurance for so long has had so much friction in it. Just It's been a horrible, horrible process. You have to call an insurer. You have to go through a paper-based underwriting process. They send you PDFs to sign. It's like the 1990s is still where the insurance industry operates. And then this great modernization happens, and led by companies like Hipster, based in Rostock in Germany, of all things. And I know to North Americans, Rostock in Germany won't mean very much, but you know, it's a few hours on a train north of Berlin. Not many people spend much time in Rostock in Germany, but here it is, this, this great insurtech business being built in, in this little town in Germany, delivering a need that is that is really, really imminent right now. So we love InsurTech. We love digital MGAs. We love the modernization of InsurTech. We love new software into incumbent insurers. We think parametric insurance is very interesting. We love new risk pricing and risk transfer technologies into the insurance market. The insurance market is going through what banking went through a little while ago, which is a great modernization. And that is going to create enormous, enormous opportunities, both for DTC businesses, as you would have already seen, lots of them are very mature already. But the B2B insurance market is really coming up quickly behind it. And we think there's lots of opportunity there, especially in Europe, which is a very insured market. And the last company I wanted to chat about was uh, Axony. And uh, my understanding is that they use blockchain technology to promote data sharing across financial services institutions. And personally, I find that that use case for, for blockchain tech, it's not as sexy, but it's more likely to last, in my opinion. Um, so I would love to hear just your, your thoughts on that investment as well. Yeah, don't tell Greg Fay Axoni that you don't think his his blockchain technology is sexy. So Axoni was a was a portfolio company in our last fund, and we met Greg and Jeff I think in 2015 where they were just starting out on the journey. And Greg had a background in capital markets, but he was also very early into crypto. So so Greg and Jeff were were real believers in the crypto story very early on. And they were perfectly placed, I think, to see the marriage of the underlying technology and the need in a space where Greg had spent a lot of time, which was capital markets. And so they started experimenting with permissioned blockchains. And I know crypto people absolutely hate the term permissioned blockchains. It's, it's complete anathema. But they had started to experiment with, could this technology be used in a private closed network? to solve a problem in capital markets, which is people shuffling data, lots and lots and lots of counterparties shuffling data amongst themselves, trying to reconcile the truth. And you know there must be tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of capital markets trades made every day, especially in the derivatives markets, where the truth of the trade is confirmed by people on phones where you can't hear each other which are then written down on pieces of paper, which are then run over to the middle office to enter into a system. And the two systems 
fly off in different directions and all of a sudden you have different sets of data. And so it's been a problem for a very long time. The industry's solution to reconciliation of, of cat markets, uh, truth is old and expensive. And so Greg and Jeff decided that they were going to apply blockchain to the problem. And they've done a phenomenal job. So you would have seen that BlackRock just joined their equity swaps network. And that's a real moment. One of, if not the world's biggest asset manager, deciding that they are going to confirm and affirm and reconcile trades on Axoni software, it, I think is a real validation. And they've been operating in, you know, they've, they've been with the ASX in Australia, building equities settlement. They've been with the DTCC, building a credit derivatives market. They have found all of these assets where legacy technology and inefficiencies of the markets have been improved by the use of the, use of the software. And, you know, enterprise, enterprise blockchain, I, I think I'm going to have targets on my back by, by all the crypto people using that term, but enterprise blockchain has been a long time coming. Uh, and I think Axoni are, are one of the teams that are going to prove it, it, it can actually work. Amazing. Thank you so much for uh, diving deeper into those investments. Very cool to hear uh, your thought process going into them. Zooming out a little bit, I would love to hear uh, what comes next for Element Ventures. And, uh, you know, maybe more generally, even than that, is just what excites you about fintech over the next few years? Yeah, so we are about halfway through the deployment period of our first fund. So we're just going to continue doing what we've been doing for the last 18 months. We'll find more bill hops, hipsters and coin covers. I think our first 18 months has really validated what, what we think we're here to do. So we'll start thinking about fund two and fund three in, in due course. But right now the team is heads down. Um, trying to make sure that we deliver on, on all the promises that we've made to our stakeholders. What are we focused on next? So I think it's it's some of the things that we've already spoken about. So we're spending a lot of time in, in the SME finance space. We're spending a lot of time in the open banking tooling space. We're spending a lot of time in embedded insurance. We think the Hepster example, which is product insurance delivered via an API, that has lots of applicability in lots of other markets, whether it's SMB insurance or whether it's life insurance or whether it's home insurance or whatever it is, the model of efficient, highly agile delivery of insurance in the embedded format we think has lots of places to run in Europe. We're going to continue to find crypto investments where we think we've got an argument to make about some of the experiences we've had. And look, you know, the B2B space is a space that's moving very, very quickly. I think I'm excited about a new theme every week. This week it was embedded lending Next week, it'll be the verticalization of KYC and AML products. Um, and the next week, it'll be something after that. So, yeah, the opportunity in front of us is, is, is really great. So we're, we're very excited. I wanted to end today's session with a rapid fire round of questions. Uh, we aim to get answers here in 10 seconds or less. Are you ready to That's go? Stressful. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> I believe yeah, in you. I should be better, should be better prepared. <laughs> no, you're all right. Okay. Uh, best startup pitch you ever heard? Uh, Joachim, the CEO of Minna Technologies. Uh, pet peeve when listening to pitches. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> uh, not enough time spent focusing on the customer's perspective. Favorite city in Europe? Oh, I'd, lo I'd lose my citizenship here if I didn't say London. Nice. Uh, most exciting region in fintech that's not Europe? That's not Europe? Yeah. Ooh, uh, that's a good question. Australia. <laughs> nice. Uh, and last question is a uh, fun fact about you that most people don't know. Uh, most people know everything about me. I'm a bit of an open book. 
I'll tell you what, the fun fact people don't know about me, which is relevant to where you are now, is I think I'm probably the only Kiwi who's ever deep fried a turkey for Thanksgiving in <laughs> uh, outside of Indianapolis. That's a hell of a story. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I'm married to a Hoosier, so... Um, well, there you go. Yeah, I've had the fortune of, uh, of that quite special experience. Yeah. Well, I didn't think that's where this conversation was going to end up, but, uh, but, here, <laughs> but here we are. Um, but Mike, uh, amazing having you on the show today. Really appreciate your perspective uh, on your investments, on Element Ventures, on just the space in general. Uh, so thanks again for your time. Thanks very much. Speak to you soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, and Twitter at Warden Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor, Raphael Austria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.